in the air. Hello, test. Hello, test. Hello, hello, Long Island. Hello, hello, test. Are you out there, Staten Island? Hello there, Connecticut. You out there? Hello, raise your hands out there in Pennsylvania there. There it is. Very good. They're on the air there. I'm forever blowing bubbles. Pretty bubbles in the air. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, get things organized here. Yeah, oh, well, it's very good. Very good. We've got it all straightened out here. I see Learn the vast popcorn machine of life buttered all over, buttered all over. Hey, listen, did I tell you the great moment that I heard on the ball game? One thing about listening to FM uh, broadcasts of ball games from out of town, you hear a very different sound than you hear from, say, uh, Shea Stadium. Uh, you do not quite hear the same dead quality that they have, you know, out, out at these big... Of course, uh, it's, it's the difference technically. It's the difference between one, uh, one kind of press box and another. And uh, I'm listening to the ball game. I got the FM going, you see. And this is, they're only broadcasting it on FM, and they must have had about a Class X line. Uh, Phil Rizzuto sounded like Donald Duck with a cold. And he's going along there talking about the ball game, and they're down. Yeah, you know, it was terrible. It was just a wild sound. He had. How does it sound? You want me to do the imitation of that? It was. And of course, I got this big hi-fi FM set, and he even sounded more like Donald Duck on a big hi-fi one. I suppose on a little bit of Sony or something, he'd sound okay. But he's he's coming booming through there, and um, and there was a brief. Pause. Uh, he was looking out of the field or something, and you could hear the background noise. Now, obviously, he was in a press box. It wasn't even a press box at all. It was very open. Uh, it was like he must have been sitting right in the third row uh, back of second base or something. Uh, because suddenly I hear this voice. You hear this guy saying, Programs! Programs! Pictures of all the Yankees! Programs! Programs here! Programs! Pictures of all the Yankees! Autograph program, uh, program here. And there was a brief momentary lull in his shouting, and you hear somebody say, somebody down in the crowd hollers, You get out of my way, shut up, I can't even listen to the ball game, can't I? Will you move on? Another pause, and you hear this voice again say, Oh, shut up, I'm not going to sell my programs. Program, program, program. You hear this other voice say, "Come move along, you bum, where you move? And all the while, Phil doesn't even know this, this great colloquy is going on the air. Until finally, the last guy in line said a most fantastic bit of profanity. It came floating out of the deep south there, uh, right out of that, right out of that stands, that wonderful, soft, easy, uh, life is full and rich and springtime is coming up and there's only 22 days till opening day warmth down there. This guy hollered something at the, at the program man. You could just hear him holler, Oh, where are you, you? And the program guy says, Oh, so you're old man. Program, program. And he fades off and Phil goes right on. Phil says, uh, well, that brings up Bobby Richardson now, uh, with two down in the seventh inning. Apparently he had no idea what went on. It was just a great moment. And, uh, I, I, I remember, uh, of course I'm, I'm a, I'm a great fan of uh, taking my radio, as I do quite often. I, how many of you, when you're watching television shows that are live shows of one kind or another, I'm not talking about the big dramatic shows where they edit everything and it's all done in a 
in a big studio out in Hollywood somewhere. But live shows like, uh, oh, uh, you can, there are dozens of them. There's all kinds of shows like panel shows and stuff where they do them live. Have you ever uh, stopped looking at the show entirely, which is very easy to do, most of them. Uh, <laughs> just, just stop looking at the show entirely and look over to the sides of the pictures once in a while in the background and turn up the gain real high and you'll hear all kinds of wild extraneous things going on in the studio and you'll see little things going on even in sight you'll see you'll see uh, the back end of some cameraman all of a sudden appear and disappear you just got to keep your eyes going you'll yeah and then you'll see somebody pull you'll see a cable sneaking across the foreground it looked like a snake crawling out from underneath Johnny Carson's shoe you know you hear but get the cable I for crazy you hear pulling pulling <laughs> and you see Carson's eyes flicker a little bit you see the engineers are doing a big deal or or the or the dancers out there and her shoe fell off before the show. Oh, you get all these wild things. I remember one night watching a television show and they, they had the dressing room right behind the rose trellis. And uh, out in front of, uh, right in front of the screen, there's the dancer doing the, the big bullfight scene. He's dancing around and, and the band is playing, the castanets are going. And I'm aware of a vague movement behind him, off to the left, over in the rose bushes. They had the trellis there. And I, I crept up real close to the TV set and looked, and I could see right there, outlined in the trellis, you could just see her as clear as day, is the next act who had just been on before. It was one of these shows, you know, where they come back and forth and they do different things. The, the girl who had just left the camera and was now gone off the picture, she was in the rose trellis there, and she was getting dressed. It was one of the most interesting TV shows that I've seen in a long time. And she had, there was a lady there helping her dress, and she whooped off like, I'm watching for crying out loud, doesn't anyone see this? Well, radio, radio is like that, too. And if you, if you ever turn up the gain, if you have a, if you have an FM set there and you turn up the gain, you can hear arguments here at WOR. You can hear Ted Malley arguing with Jack Stewart out there in the control room. You can hear down on the 23, 23rd floor, if you listen during the day, you can hear the moaning of the salesman. You can hear the, the weeping and the wailing, and you can hear the yelling in the program department. You turn it all the way up. And all the while, Faye Henley is just going right out. She's, and on the other hand, if you buy mutual funds, and back of her you hear the life of the radio station, the fist fighting. You hear, you hear Dennis here trying to save tape by picking it up off the floor and putting it together from the wastebaskets. Sure, and be gone, you're wasting all the tape again. And uh, you hear this? <laughs> oh, it's, it's just great, and, and uh, it's the it's the effluvia. It's the rich, it's the rich, it's the rich Fleischmann's yeast cake of life over here. You hear? <laughs> I, I, uh, I've often threatened to tell. I think I may even do it this Saturday at the limelight. I've often threatened to tell the story of uh, of the great vendor uh, Ernie who became famous all throughout the Midwest. It was the only vendor I've ever known at a ballpark who became literally famous. He was just as famous as any of the ball players. The reason he became famous was because he worked directly in front of the press box at uh, Comiskey Park, and uh, he sold all kinds of stuff, but primarily he sold popcorn. And he was very famous for his famous cry, which went, and you'd hear it echo from one end of the park to the other. You'd hear it bounce off the left field wall, and you'd hear it go all the way out to the right field scoreboard. You'd hear it echo back through that great cavern of the of the stands behind home plate. And there'd be maybe 700 people in the stands, you know. And you'd hear big old Ernie Howard. Butter, 
knew. It was just part of the whole scene. And once in a while, Bob Elson would say, there's Ernie down there. And he, he didn't have to turn up the gain. You just hear the sound echoing throughout the entire park, just floating and drifting. It was part of the, the rich effluvia of life. It was just the little externals, the sounds of life, you know, where, where things really are. You know, uh, I don't know how many people ever get really aware or conscious of sound. Uh, in their life. I mean, the, the the impact that sound has on them and the sound of a neighborhood. I remember one time in a free balloon flight, uh, I think uh, the only way you can really become conscious of your world is by somehow, some magic, being able to uh, kick off from it, to get away from it, to literally drift off the surface of it and get above it or get away from it. Uh, you begin to appreciate America, I'll tell you this, when you travel away from it. Now, this is not to say that America is better than other countries. It's just home. Uh, it's America. And you understand the difference that America has from all other countries. The minute you set foot on foreign soil and the, the first instant that the, uh, the, if, the if euphoria of newness wears off in the new country, then you begin to think, America, wow. Uh, and, and I once flew in a free balloon flight. Uh, out of uh, Pennsylvania, out of a out of a town just outside of Philadelphia, and floated maybe four or five thousand feet above the surface of uh, Pennsylvania, over the Pennsylvania hills there, and you could hear the you hear the countryside, the entire countryside. You could hear it. You couldn't see anybody down there. Well, you'd see an occasional person down on a sidewalk, a little tiny dot, but you can hear them. You know, when you're in an airplane flying above the country, you don't hear any of this because you're in an airplane. It's sealed, and there's a tremendous motor and all that jazz. But the the Earth acts as a great a great uh, mirror, like a great reflector. And uh, when you're up about four or five thousand feet, you can hear dogs barking for miles. And you never hear a dog bark when you're walking around on the ground. You, know, you hear it once in a while, but you're not aware of a constant uproar of dogs barking. There's a constant uproar of dogs. Did you know that barking? You hear them all over the country. They're barking. Well, I don't know where they are. They're barking, that's all. And when you're about uh, 4,000 feet above the ground, you hear the sound of the barking. And you hear people talking in a yard. Now, why you suddenly hear two people talking in a yard at 4,000 feet, only an acoustical engineer or maybe a meteorologist could tell you. But you hear two people, you hear a woman talking to a man or something, and you're 4,000 feet above them, and it comes in as clearly as if you were 10 feet away from them. You can understand them. You hear them talking. It's all kinds of little air currents and one thing or another. And then, then they'll suddenly disappear. You won't hear that sound anymore. Then you hear something else. You'll hear the sound of a kid hitting hitting the fence or something with a stick. You'll hear it very clearly. You're thunk, 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 thunk. And you're, oh, 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 a dog bark. And then you hear somebody hollering, hey, Gus, hey, Gus, where's the screwdriver? And then he'll disappear. <laughs> it's, the, it's, it's all the, it's the sound and the jazz of life going on, a, a, steady, a steady cacophony. Uh, and you hear music, too. That's another curious thing. Uh, there, there are radios all over. This is, of course, summertime. You hear radios in cars. You hear radios coming out of out of windows of apartments and houses, and you just hear a steady uproar of music. Just very gently, you hear this music behind you. Just very quietly, it's coming along, you know. And you can hear it, you know. It's like as if spread before you and under you and all around you is this fantastic, unbelievable newsreel of people 
all walking around and scratching. It's like a, it's like a, a midsection of life, you know, and, or, or some kind of uh, some kind of a cross section of it all. And you can just hear somebody like Andre Farouche saying, "The eyes and the world and the ears and the feet of everything is upon you." And now the Paramount Newsreel presents the ears and the eyes of the world. And now, as we view the world from this 4,000-foot altitude, we see over in left field there, we see a fistfight beginning. We will not see the end of this fistfight, but then again, either will the two participants, because it will go on all the rest of their lives. In fact, it went on for years before this moment that we're watching. And if we look carefully over there behind that big Sherwin-Williams paint sign, we see the floodwaters of passion sweeping in great ever-circling waves around those two tiny figures hidden there in the bushes. We will not see the end of this story either. In fact, will there be an end? Is there a beginning? But nevertheless, that great flood tide of passion sweeps on and on and on. It is life, friends, existence. It is the river of time. And we are floating on it like tiny corks. Here's another sign to existence, friends. Yes. If we... <laughs> yes, look down there, friends, down there on Old 7th Street. You notice the buffoonery of existence. Charlie has just been thrown out of the Bluebird Tavern for the fourth time this week. He is dusting himself off now. Uh, his wife back home in Aquanamanot is preparing dinner, cabbage, and... Rico, of course. And Charlie is prepared once again to face life the way he thinks it should be faced. Head on. He's not going to make it, but uh, it's all part of that great comedy. The... There he goes. Up he made the curve. Very good. <laughs> quack, quack. Oh, yes, there are things. Uh, speaking of the comedy of life, friends, this is WOR AM and FM, New York. And I think we can do it. Hit it. Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Distinctive Miller High Life in Pop and Pour Cans. Just Pop and Pour Miller High Life, the champagne of bottled beer. No opener needed. And inside every can, enjoy the hearty yet light goodness of Miller High Life. Brewed from a century-old recipe, only in Milwaukee. Miller High Life always gives you that perfect taste in beer every time. Always a bright, clear taste. Unequaled, unquestioned, unchanging. Now you can enjoy refreshing Miller High Life in Pop and Pour cans. Pop and Pour Miller High Life. Always sparkling, flavorful, distinctive. Now in Pop and Pour cans. your car old enough to smoke? Surprising how many cars are. Is your car old enough to smoke? Surprising how many cars are. A car needn't be old to smoke. Some cars start burning oil early. If your car uses too much oil, give it Prestone Oil Miser. Prestone Oil Miser is just what the name says. A miser for oil. Prestone Oil Miser stops oil burning, restores lost power, quiets noisy engines, cuts exhaust smoking. Prestone Oil Miser makes worn engines run quieter. 
Just add a can of Prestone Oil Miser to your regular oil. Insist on Prestone Oil Miser wherever auto supplies are sold. If your car's old enough to smoke, surprising how many cars are. If your car's old enough to smoke, get Prestone Oil Miser. That's wiser by far. Prestone Oil Miser is a product of Union Carbide. You're very loud people. You certainly are. <laughs> of course, the world is full of loud people. Uh, you know, speaking of uh, the world, it's... Uh, uh, I, I think more and more than ever before, people are driven by some fantastic urge to have answers, you know, have the answer to it all. Uh, and uh, somehow people relate the fact that they don't have answers to it with some kind of vague flaw in the system. <laughs> A vague flaw in, in whoever they elected or <laughs> or the law or some ridiculous thing. In fact, uh, somebody sent me a great little uh, an ad. I'm... Uh, I'm adding this to my vast file of trivia, which uh, I tried to get it uh, displayed at the World's Fair next to that uh, mechanical uh, statue of Abraham Lincoln. But uh, Moses, you know how he is. And, of course, uh, he's dealing with the fair. I wonder how the fair is going to work this year. uh, Well, don't, don't be so quick to say one way or the other. You know, I think the fair was ahead of its time. I do. I think the fair... Uh, opened up before the great rise of pop art, really before it became a, a major obsession. And the fair itself is a major work of pop art. It's kind of mindless. Uh, it's uh, it's like instant quickie stuff. You know, you have the feeling that everything about uh, about the the fair is about to wash down into the canal, about to wash out to the bay. Oh, I was there the second day, and already one of the buildings with the big chunks of plaster were falling on my head there. And uh, this is pop art, you know. You you always have a feeling. Uh, have you ever seen any pop art? There's nothing permanent about it. You don't have any feeling that, that 2,000 years from now there'll be 18,000 people standing around in a cathedral looking at Flash Gordon or looking at an Andy Warhol film. Forget it. I mean, <laughs> this is, there's nothing permanent at all about it. And I think that the fair is liable to be a bigger hit this year because of a change in the atmosphere. Uh, that, the, that the very things that the fair was criticized last year for will be its plus things this year. Last year it was criticized for being superficial, for being uh, jazzy, for being mindless, uh, you know, kind of a genuine big old pop thing. You just stand around and eat hot dogs and stand in line all day long. And, uh, you know, what do you do? When you get inside, you look at a Ford. You know, that's after four and a half hours of waiting, what do you do? You look at the back end of a Buick. Uh, this is this is a this is a kind of wonderful mindlessness which I think will will be far more fitting this year than last. I think that the intellectuals quote self-professed. Incidentally, have you ever noticed that almost every time people write down the word intellectual, they say self-proclaimed intellectual or uh, self-professed beatnik. This is a phrase or uh, or pseudo intellectual or would-be intellectual. Who are, who are the real ones? Curious who they are. I don't know, but uh, I, I think that uh, that the uh, that the hip, uh, whatever it is, the pop art world is going to dig the World's Fair this year far more than they did last. And I suspect it will become very chic about the middle of July. It's all part of that camp syndrome. It'll be very chic about the middle of July for everybody to, to, to form a big party and go out to the World's Fair and eat hot dogs and wait in line at the GM Pavilion. 
It'll be very, you know, there'll be guys with Madras T-shirts out there. It'll be the, the, the whole Cherry Island, the whole Cherry Grove, the whole Fire Island scene will, 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 uh, will move out to the world's fair. I have a feeling, a very strong feeling about this. And the Voguesville and all the ladies with the high black belts and the bull whips and all that. It'll be very, it'll be very chic. Last year it was not chic at all to be seen at the fair. This year it'll be extremely chic to be seen waiting in line outside of the Institute of Better Living to see if you can get a free sample of uh, frozen custard. Uh, it'll be very chic to stand outside of these, uh, the, the Scott tissue uh, thing there. You remember that pavilion? Stand out there and see the romance, the romance of the facial tissue. Uh, the romance of toilet tissue, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, and, and, oh, it'll be very, very chic. And I have a feeling that it's in the wind. And I don't think Mr. Moses uh, anticipated that. But uh, I, I think already uh, you probably 400 articles are being prepared by a very chic young men about this, this very thing. And I, and I think it's in the wind, definitely. Everyone will want to go to the GE exhibit to see the mechanical actors. Did you see that one? And, and there will be a great uh, rush among Sheiksville to go and applaud Elsie the Cow. I can see this all part of the uh, the camp work, can't you? To go and applaud Elsie the Cow after you go to the discotheque and after you've made uh, the Shepherd's uh, discotheque scene, you all jump into your MGs and go out to applaud Elsie the Cow. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in the wind. And, uh, and I think that the fair is liable to become a very different thing than it was last year. It was ahead of its time. One year ahead of its time. That had it opened in 1965, right now, uh, I think the fair would be uh, a, a big thing. Uh, just as uh, so many, and I mean big thing in the, uh, in the tastemakers world. You know, the little fella, the little thin guys that have the Tiffany lamps and all that. Uh, in their world, this, uh, it's just a little bit ahead of itself. I've seen this happen time and time again. Uh, I, I, I've known people who opened discotheques, for example about three years too early, and they were just called juke joints. And, uh, and uh, the hip set would never be seen dead inside of them. That's the end of it. Uh, and, I, and I know dozens of, of bad rock and roll singers that were just a little bit too ahead of their time. Now it's all cute and fun, you know, to be part of the, the Beatle world and all that. <laughs> and the other guys are sitting out there. <laughs> you, can be, you can be just completely too soon. And I, I, I think that the next thing you're going to see, and of course it's already underway now, uh, with with the sudden rise of, of all the uh, the talk about the various radio shows now everything in the paper, I think that the next big thing you're going to see it's going to be very chic to listen to the radio as a kind of pop art. Oh yeah, I think it's very definitely in the wind. It's all part of the the pop art thing. It's, it'll be very chic to listen to Al McCann talk about frozen asparagus. Sure, this is a you know they say oh did you hear him say striped bass today and it'll all be part of that that wonderful. <laughs> Mindless world of the of the of the uh, of the camperinos. Huh? Uh, speaking of the mindless world, we have a couple of commercials here, and uh, one of them happens to be. Oh, is it one of them with the buttons there? Oh no, 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 no. We got Peugeot here, and uh, if you, uh, I want you to get on a stick now. Write a write a postcard immediately to Peugeot. Uh, that's uh, if you don't know how to spell it. It's very confusing. It has T's and E's and O's and U's and stuff in it. Just send it to P double O J O E. Old Peugeot. Old Peugeot. He's a jockey who used to ride the... Well, that's another scene. But uh, send your name and address to Peugeot here at WOR, and we will send you all the details and data of one of the finest cars made in the world. It's considered one of the top seven 
by a very authoritative British automobiling magazine. It's an excellent machine, and it's a pretty one. It's very inexpensive, exceedingly well-designed, and practically trouble-free. I drove mine for five years, and I think all I did was put... The only thing I did to it was kick the trunk in. That's about all that happened to me. I, I uh, Well, I didn't kick it in. A guy uh, trying to park behind me kicked it in, and I just left it that way. But that's the only thing that ever happened to my Peugeot in five years. Outside of the fact that, uh, you know, uh, I got my finger caught in the door one day and a few other things like that. But nevertheless, uh, if you would like to know about a really fine car and you're thinking of an automobile this year, you owe it to yourself to investigate the Peugeot, one of the most sought-after cars in Europe. And very hard. By the way, there's still a waiting line for them throughout most of Europe. Uh, this car is one of the finest sedan-type cars and is considered uh, probably one of the two or three only European cars that is thoroughly practical for American turnpike driving. It's got the overdrive and the whole scene. Peugeot. And uh, by the way, the dealer here in Manhattan is at 2 East 46th Street, right off of 5th Avenue, right in the heart of the holy smokes, how do they afford the rent district? Uh, you'll find it there. It's a Peugeot. Now, what else do we have? Leather? Leather crap? It's a Thursday. Oh, yeah, one more thing before we do any more of this uh, this uh, business of, of the World's Fair, which I'm not going to do. You know, speaking of the World's Fair, and and, uh, and I, I'm an old World's Fair buff. I, I, I've gone to, let's see, the 39 Fair. I remember the uh, fair in Chicago as a kid. I went to that one. I have some dim recollections of it. I went to the Brussels Fair in uh, Brussels. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of course, uh, this one on here. Of course, this, the, the, the big difference between this fair and any other World's Fair is that it's not a World's Fair. Uh, it isn't a genuine World's Fair, and I guess that's the first thing that hits you if you have been to other World's Fairs. It's kind of a, a big trade fair. But I suspect, I suspect very strongly uh, that, uh, that, the, that the change that's come about in our country will also make the World's Fair a peculiarly instinctual right thing for 1965. Uh, everywhere there, there is a, a, a strange kind of pseudo-seriousness that's become very important. Uh, there have been uh, a couple of... And, and that, that, I think, is more than anything else part and parcel of the World's Fair. I went into at least three of the big serious-type pavilions... Uh, and I was struck by one thing. It was all play acting. Uh, I went into four of the religious, uh, you know, the religious pavilions out there. And you had a feeling that, that it was all like a, a kind of signboard. It was all play acting. You know what I mean? They, they, were, they were playing seriousness. Uh, the Billy Graham Pavilion. There were a couple of other pavilions. Yeah, they were all playing, you know. And, and I went into this this tremendous pavilion. They must have spent forty-eight million dollars on it. it. It shall go unnamed. But I had the feeling that it had about as much reality uh, regarding the the thing that it was dealing with as say, uh, oh, uh, a Pepsi Cola ad that talks about thinking young is really talking about thinking young. Really talking. It, it had this kind of seriousness. Now, where, where is that piece that I had here? Oh, I probably left it downstairs. No, here it is. Uh, hey, uh, uh, Stanley, uh, would you would you please give me a second here? Now, now, if you can give me some Tchaikovsky music while you're digging that up, I think this is uh, that kind of mock seriousness, which I think is really, uh, 
really part and parcel of our whole world. I, I don't think anybody today is really very serious about much of anything. And anybody that is, is even partially serious uh, can go all the way in this world. I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about the kind of seriousness where, where you read an interview by, by uh, oh, a folk singer, for example, like in the current, uh, one of the current, uh, as uh, Robert Brewstein calls it, a chic weekly, The Village Voice. There will be a, an interview with, say, somebody like uh, Bob Dylan, who is about as thick as the average piece of onion skin newspaper. That's about as, as superficial as his, uh, his comments go about the world. And uh, you have a feeling that it's all pseudo-seriousness. Everything is, it's, it's a bit, it's a gimmick, it's all pseudo. Uh, now, you can be very passionate in a pseudo way. Uh, I wonder where acting today stops and real people begin. How many people spend most of their lives acting in one way or another? And you know an actor up on the stage can, can weep real tears, can get, his, can get his sweatshirt all wet with the tears he's, he's weeping, and he can scream and yell. In fact, he can be far more involved, he can be far more actually emotional on the stage uh, about this scene, about this, uh, this uh, thing that he's doing, than he is in his real life. And I wonder how many of us have adopted acting techniques to our world. How much acting goes on all day long where a guy is sitting around here, let's say in the sales department of WOR, and he is acting on the phone. Uh, he is acting in person. He is acting in the sales meeting. Uh, you walk along. I wonder how much acting goes on in these big buildings on, on, uh, on Park Avenue during the average day. Now, a technician... Uh, a guy who really just does something, let's say a guy who drives a bus or a man who works some kind of a machine or a man who operates a computer, or here, you, Matt, a man who operates uh, equipment, and, and he's got a job. He just does his job. He doesn't do any much acting. He just presses the button or he operates the thing and that. But I'm talking about all the rest. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's all a big act. It's like a big game, you know. <laughs> and everyone's pretending. They're all they're all getting all involved with with, with, with kind of an enormous acting scene. And I'm waiting for the day when when colleges teach courses in involvement, uh, just like an acting. A good acting school today will give you courses in method acting. Uh, they'll give you they'll give you uh, the basic precepts of Stanislavski, the concepts that he used he uses for actors to get involved, to use sense memory. And I suspect that in colleges, when you know guys taking business courses, they will give him courses in involvement. How to pretend that you're involved? Uh, how to use sense memory? Uh, how to use all kinds of techniques? To, to become one of these guys who really always looks concerned. He really does. He, gets, he, he makes contact. He's real in his acting about this little trivial stuff that he's involved in. <laughs> I have a feeling that, that it's definitely going to happen. It, it will. Do you know that, do you know that in, in certain, uh, certain circles right now, in certain religious circles now, they are literally teaching involvement? They are, they are sending out religious people, uh, guys who are going to be missionaries and one thing or another. They're giving them little taste of real life so they'll know what it is they're fighting. Uh, it's just like uh, uh, you'll see in the Sunday edition of the Times where they list all the, the uh, various... Uh, they list all the various camps. In fact, somebody did, did a, I'm talking about summer camps, you know. Uh, somebody did a bit in the New Yorker on it. It's a very funny bit this, this week. It's a very funny piece because uh, you can go to camps now where you will work at a job for a while. For two weeks, they'll actually have you, uh, yeah, they'll have you tramping grapes or something. 
uh, with a foreman yelling at you. Uh, it's, it's, it's pseudo involvement. It's practice involvement. Now, here is the kind of thing that I call true pseudo seriousness, but it's, you know what, and a yard wide. It's just unbelievably thick. In fact, it's up. You, you got the Tchaikovsky in there? Uh, here is a quotation from an article in the New York Times about that pseudo campy seriousness that kind of taking whatever you're doing very seriously, but it's totally unrelated to real life, completely and thoroughly. This is from a New York Times Sunday supplement of March 7th. Bring it on there. And it's talking about now. It's discussing now, friends, this springtime. And the, the article begins with big block type that says, This is the spring to take fashion lightly. Throw inhibitions to the winds. Fashion has the vitality of the young, who are giving it unexpected twists, taking unforeseen liberties, bringing a spirited freshness to spring clothes for women of all ages. Not since the flapper flourished have clothes been so unconstructed, so unconfining. The focus has shifted to legs, hemlines stop inches above the knee. The dress of the moment is the boneless shift that sees a woman through active days. And whirlwind nights. That describes your life, I'm sure. In short, fashion suddenly is today, bearing no nostalgic echoes. It has the immediacy of pop art. The contemporary woman does not glance backward for assurance. She strides swiftly and securely in her open, low-heeled shoes, covers her curls with a scarf hat, brushes a healthy glow on her skin, and she herself has the vigor of an action painting. Holy smokes. There you go. That's enough of that. Now, that's what I mean by glop. Uh, this was sent to me by a woman who was 72. <laughs> woman of all ages. Yes, she has the vigor of an action painting striding courageously into the future. Well, now, now this is pseudo-seriousness. Uh, you, you might call it woman's page glomp, but it isn't. That's the New York Times. That's not Vogue, who always has had that problem. Uh, this is uh, this thing is beginning to creep into areas where it never crept before. Now, I'm sure that a large number of people reading this say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. And you see you see this uh, chick striding at us, and it's very difficult to tell. My, my uh, listener writes, it's a woman, a man, a little girl, a what? <laughs> no, it's the cult of ugliness now sweeping our nation. That's quite true. Uh, it's the cult of no identity. Speaking of, uh, of uh, let's see, we have, uh, speaking of identities, I, I think one day that uh, also part of pop art will be the well-turned commercial. I think, uh, I think more and more people will begin to see that the commercial itself is probably one of the, and in fact, you already see it now in the museums. What do you think uh, the Campbell soup cans are? The Brillo boxes, one thing and another. Wait till the, the pop people begin to realize that the radio and TV commercial is the real thing. It is the real thing. It's creative guys working like insanely uh, dedicated maniacs to do a totally trivial act. <laughs> you know? And it is genuinely the essence of pop art. And uh, speaking of uh, well-turned commercials, we have here with us tonight, let's see, 
Uh, you got parks in there? Now, here is an example of pop art. Can't you see uh, at least 450 people working on this thing? There have been a thousand and more phone calls made. There has been $35,000 spent. A great industry is moving slowly like a glacier down towards the Arctic Sea of acquisitiveness. Pop art in motion. Ooh, it's time for my favorite radio announcer. Air lady, are you bored with the same old steak and spaghetti and chicken for dinner? Yes, Well, yes. Park Sausage Company in Baltimore, Maryland can tell you how to make splendid new main dishes. I'll write to them. But you mustn't cheat. <gasps> you mustn't buy ordinary sausage just because it costs 10 cents less. Only Parks has the flavor and quality to make a heroic dinner. I won't cheat. And now, don't touch that dial because I'm going to sing for you. Yes, yes. Bring home the sausage, be a hero. Yes, bring home the sausage, P-A-R-K-S. Sausage to win ya, sausage that's braver. Up from Virginia, Park's famous flavor. Bring home more Park sausages, Mom. Up from Virginia? Well, you said to write to Baltimore. Uh, Park sausage is made from an old Virginia recipe of the Park's family. The plant is in Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, oh, me. <laughs> now, you see what I mean? That is pop art galloping. It really is. And, you know, uh, I think an essence, uh, one of the essences of pop art, really, is uh, a, a peculiar kind of functionality, but a very crass functionality. Uh, in other words, if you take a look at a, at a painting, uh, a traditional painting, the painting has a function of its own. That's it. It's just a... a thing. It's a beautiful thing, and that's the end of it. It doesn't do any more than that. Whereas, if you take a look at much, much of the pop art, the pop art is derived from other functions. In short, the Campbell soup can is a, a functional object. It is, a, it is an object that has a very basic function, too. Uh, and this happens to be just one of the more uh, recognized pieces of pop art. I'm only using it and not necessarily one of the best. Now, I think that the radio commercial is a piece of pop art because it does have a function. They're trying to make the cash registers go. Uh, they're trying to move the goods. Now, uh, how they do it, uh, <laughs> it, 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 there's there's all kinds of commercials. I mean, they, they range all the way from the totally ab uh, absurd. And, you know, I think that the, that the uh, commercial is related very closely, too, to the theater of the absurd. After all, I'm talking about that kind of commercial, the big produced commercial. Uh, much of the theater of the absurd is dependent upon a juxtaposition of values. It's dependent upon uh, sight gags. It depends on uh, a kind of absurdity uh, and a, and a pseudo-profundity. And often you'll find the commercials are very pseudo-profound, like the other night when we read this full-page ad from the Scott Tissue people, uh, who were, they were dedicating their entire world to the goddesses of tomorrow. And they were going to be ready for them. And their, their laboratories are working night and day. Uh, it's a pseudo kind of uh, profundity and a kind of real involvement in nothing. Uh, and speaking of commercials, we have one more here. Leathercraft, uh, which we've talked about from time to time. Uh, let's see. I want to get the address. Uh, yeah, it's the warehouse sale of luxury vinyls for wall covering and upholstery. And this organization, by the way, sells... Uh, almost exclusively through decorators and so on. But now they're having a big sale of odds and ends and uh, leftovers and one thing and another, and they're selling them directly to the public through their warehouse. 
It's the Vinyl Fabrics Division of Leather Guild. And they're inviting the public to come directly to their Leather Guild warehouse for really fantastic bargains and odds and ends, closeouts, and so on. Now, these are the finest vinyls made anywhere in the world. This is very expensive, excellent stuff. Uh, many of them have been knocked down uh, just because they are closeouts and odds and ends to a dollar a yard. They have a tremendous assortment at three ninety. They have, uh, here are some of the descriptions: leather grains, patent leather vinyls, leopard spots, tortoise, <laughs> damasks, prints, suede vinyls, and uh, these are the same vinyls that are used in the big luxury hotels and one thing and another. And the address is fifty two East Twenty First Street just west of Park Avenue South. It's a limited-time only sale, uh, and you'll save up to 50% on this vinyl. The address, again, is 52 East 21st Street. They're open Monday through Saturday, 9 to 5, and Thursdays until 8. Okay? All right. Everybody's under control. Now, uh, yeah, <laughs> I suppose if you, if you uh, stand away and high and far enough back... Uh, but you can't. How can you? How can a turtle stop being a turtle? Uh, I read this piece about uh, all these people sitting in the congregation. Uh, they're sitting there quietly, minding their own business. And they're in Holland, of all places, where people are very, very serious about things. And they're sitting there, and all of a sudden, one old codger in the third row says, I'm bored. He said to the minister. The minister stopped, and suddenly somebody behind him said, So am I. And with that, the entire congregation got up and walked out. And it was reported on a worldwide <laughs> news service that the congregation just got bored and walked out. Little straws in the wind, little tiny things, but nevertheless, there they are. Big, fat straw. My mother always used to say, don't ever stick your head out of a, out of a window in a windstorm. Straws really do go through wood. She said, be careful. Keep your knees loose. And there might possibly... What is it, uh... What is it that Vincent Pricey says? Will yourself a better tomorrow? Well, that's enough to give you pause. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow at the same time, friends, to keep the ping-pong game going.